welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and we're excited to have with us today Dr. Jamar Tisby. Jamar is a New York Times bestselling author, national speaker, and public historian on a mission to deliver truths from the Black experience with depth and clarity. He's the author of several books, including The Color of Compromise, and most recently, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. We want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, we'd love it if you would leave us a review. You can also check out the extended portions of some of our interviews at churchleaders.com+. Now, before we hear from Jamar, let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. So let's jump into the conversation. Jamar, for those listening, uh, Jamar and I have known each other for, for years, um, and so we're going to have a conversation that I think uh, presses in on some issues, but they're a conversation between people who who uh, who care about one another and and who and because I Jamar has become a uh, a, a figure in the news. So here you are, you're minding your own business. You've spoken here at Wheaton College, and your message here at the Wheaton College Chapel did rile some people up. I got texts from people because you mentioned Billy Graham, and I'm going to talk about that in a bit. You mentioned Billy Graham in the message. I then listened to the message. But um, but you you made the national news because of Grove City College and. Uh, and, and again, to be clear, a sister institution to Wheaton College, right? Um, so, so tell us a little bit about what happened, and then we're going to talk through it a bit. Thanks, Ed. Just want to reiterate um, the, the graciousness that you've shown me. I'm glad to be on the show here today. The occasion was October 2020. Uh, mind you, this is weeks before the presidential election in November. I get invited to Grove City College, and I spoke there. I gave a chapel presentation. I had lunch with some, or, or I had a meeting with some students of color. I also had a meeting with the now defunct uh, President's Committee on Diversity, Advisory Committee, and I gave an evening presentation there, a book talk on the color of compromise. I had a bit of trepidation going in because I knew it was a conservative school. I, and, and a lot of times that means, you know, they're not going to vibe with everything I say on race, but I just, I didn't have any context for Grove City. So I just, I went in there, spoke as forthrightly, um, but graciously as I could and thought nothing more of it after the trip. It was a year later, over a year later in November, 2021, a petition came out called Save GCC from CRT, Save Grove City College from Critical Race Theory. It was from, quote, a group of concerned parents and former students. Why they didn't say alumni, I don't know. But uh, that's what it was. And they were talking about supposed mission drift at the school. One of the examples they used was the supposed infiltration of uh, wokeism and critical race theory and secular ideas about this stuff. And they cited me and my chapel presentation in particular, as an example of that mission drift, as something that shouldn't have happened. Uh, in response, the president of the school, President McNulty, wrote a letter. Uh, events continued, and they formed a subcommittee from the board of trustees to investigate this mission drift, uh, which focused on critical race theory, what they called critical race theory. And Subsequently, that report was released in April, and then uh, about a month later, the Board of Trustees as a whole 
officially decided to accept and adopt the report. In that report, they spent an entire page on me, particularly my chapel message. They said, Jamar isn't who we thought he was. And they said, quote, it was a mistake to invite me to speak at chapel. Uh, now, Ed, real quick, I just want to say there's always opposition. There's always disagreement when I speak at Christian colleges and universities. You mentioned even at Wheaton, there was some conversation. Never has it risen to this level of an institutional response. Okay. So this is now the official position of the board of trustees that it was a mistake to invite me. They also threw under the bus, in my opinion, several of their faculty and staff who were engaged in these kinds of efforts. So because it was an official institutional response, that's why I decided to speak out publicly about it. Okay. So, um, so they indicated that, um, that you were not who they expected, uh, quote, you're an outspoken apologist for CRT, unquote. Um, and, 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 and I do want to talk about this some, cause you're not who you used to be. Uh, your when I when we first started interacting with one another, you were at the you you were a student at uh, at RTS. You were uh, you were doing the Reformed African American Network. Uh, you know our mutual friend John Richards, served on the board. I, I had the privilege of serving with him here for a while. He's now pastoring in Little Rock. Um, but you have certainly moved on some issues. And what the question is is what is that movement? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I imagine that from your perspective, it's a good thing. What are some things that are different in the way Jamar sees the world or sees evangelicalism or sees race? Just unpack some of those things. You're you're, you know, Leave Loud is something that you helped to, 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 to put before in the whole conversation. What's different? Because they, they said you weren't who they thought you were. What is different? So first off, by the time they invited me and I spoke at Grove City College, all of these shifts had happened right so and, and none of it was in secret <laughs> so yeah yeah sure. and, like and we I in was... college i mean they, it all happened by the time you're in college so we right. i mean we knew who you were when we had you at wheaton college and you know when you invite a speaker you should know what what you're getting you should sure. do your homework in that sense so i want to make that clear yeah. that growth cities the board's assessment of me about shifting and changing um that that was all in the past by this point. So right. what you're talking about, I was waving the banner for reformed white evangelicalism right. in the early 2010s. Um, in 2011, I started the African-American leadership at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, which has its own pedigree. I started what was then the Reformed African-American Network. At that point, I really and truly believed that we could, as Black Christians, um, have a place at the table, by which I mean the reformed and white evangelical institutional table, whether that was a seminary or a website or what have you, churches, denominations, things of that nature. What I came to understand through a series of events from the murder of Trayvon Martin to the rise of Black Lives Matter to uh, the election of Donald Trump was the table was never built with um, Black people in mind, really, even if there wasn't overt animosity. It really just wasn't built with us in mind. And therefore, it was much harder, if not impossible, to truly have a place um, at the table on an equal standing with everyone else. So we went from trying to sort of elbow our way in and try to find space at this table for uh, many people who are reluctant to, to make that space to building our own tables. Mm -hmm. So that's when we changed our name to the witness, a black Christian collective, that's 
when I withdrew from the ordination process in the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, that's when I um, made a conscious decision to spend less time um, doing what I call racial apologetics and making the case that we should be talking about racism to actually serving the people who are marginalized and most adversely impacted by racism. That had all taken place by 2017. Right. So if there okay, was so a shift, I think it was. It was certainly prior. And I don't think, like I said, it was very public. I mean, no, no, no right. secret here. So, but get, giving the benefit of the doubt that maybe they weren't aware of that, it is, it is important even in our conversation. So you have shifted and and to some places like for example i i i hope you're wrong about place at the table i i'm, I'm working to make the, a different reality so we, we we're not going to agree on some of the things that are here which by the way is part of what we do in education is we hear from people who we don't dis we, we disagree with we don't always agree with okay so 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 just for framing for people who don't know you so last time we talked, actually, the last time we talked, we were talking about your PhD and how you need to finish it. So first of all, let me just say, I'm so glad you've used, we have some strong language in that conversation. Yes, so I'm glad, <laughs> you know, glad you finished it. Um, okay, so so as a, as, as a Christian, how would you, last time we talked about, you used the word evangelical adjacent. Mm. Um, you know, so, so what do you believe? You know, because do you, you've gone through seminary, you have a master's in divinity. There are words that would articulate where is Jamar as a follower of Jesus today? So if we want to listen to him, we understand from his perspective as a Christ follower. What does that look like for you? That's good. First, for our listeners, let's understand a lot of times with folks who talk about justice issues, particularly around race, there are these um, tests and checks for that sure. we send people through to say, well, do they check all the same theological boxes that I do? Therefore, I should listen to them. Or if they don't, I can dismiss them. Right. Right. So I, I just think we should make that conscious and clear. And, and, I'm not and you often reject that approach. You often reject that approach. Oftentimes so, do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because, I mean, the body of Christ is large. The tree yeah. has many branches. And we don't have to agree on every jot and tittle of theology Agreed. for us to find valuable things in other people say. That's how I can learn from white theologians. That's right. how I can learn from even pro-slavery or pro-segregation theologians, yep. right? So understand that, that there are uh, groups of Christians who do this all the time. There's a lot of times people in the majority who don't understand or um, make conscious that dynamic. So I just want to say that to, as a preamble. I receive it. I receive it. Great. So, um, and, and you actually model that, I think, really well. Uh, so I think I have learned much, much more about the Black church tradition and historic Black Christianity, and I take a lot of my cues from it. This was not uh, an education that I really received in majority white Christian spaces, whether churches or seminaries or books or anything else. So it's uh, a learning that I had to undertake on my own. And, you know, this is very basic, but again, checking our bookshelves and checking even the books that we reference for our sermons, for our teaching, for our Sunday school classes, for our new members classes, that needs to expand because again, the body of Christ is large and we can learn from a lot of different people. Um, speaking of history, when you talk about something like the black church, uh, it doesn't exist necessarily because of deep theological disagreements with white Christians. So if you go back to uh, the period immediately following the Civil War, this is when uh, Black people are finally free in, in many different um, senses of the word. And one of the first things Black Christians do is form their own churches, their own fellowships, and their own denominations. Why? 
not because they were uh, disputing the divinity of Christ, not because they were talking about uh, uh, the Trinity or, or any sort of kind of core theological issue. It's because they didn't want to be treated as second-class citizens in the household of God. And I think a similar pattern is at play today. I'm not the only one who uh, feels uh, distanced, um, in some senses pushed out of white evangelicalism. There are a lot of people across the color line who, who do that and who, who feel that way. And oftentimes the difference is not some deep theological issue that you would read about in a systematic theology textbook. It's because we have felt some sort of exclusion or marginalization for reasons that shouldn't be so in the body of Christ. Are you saying then you share a lot of the same theological beliefs you had before? Am I misstating this? However, it's been pushed out and now you're understanding more deeply the black theological tradition and, and maybe some of the, the the fact that that may embrace some of those issues differently. I'm trying to help, help mm -hmm, myself understand mm -hmm, what you're mm -hmm, answering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So think about it this way. Um, a lot of times in uh, predominantly white Christian settings, the starting point for theology, for sermons, for teaching is the resurrection. And that makes sense. Um, the starting point is a lot of times Paul's epistles, right? In the, in the very sort of logical propositional way, Paul explains um, his, his uh, theology. Understandable. It's all Bible. You know, we, all, we, we learn from it all. In the black church tradition, oftentimes the starting point is the exodus the literal liberation of enslaved people. Oftentimes the starting point is the Old Testament and the prophets who speak against um, injustice, who call out the powers that be for mistreating and misabusing or, or and abusing their power, right? So it's, it's all the same Bible, it's all the same faith, but because of our lived experiences and locations, we have sort of um, really foundational pillars that, that shape our really shape our public engagement with, with justice issues. So I'm trying to be in the line of a Martin Luther King Jr., of a Fannie Lou Hamer, of a Medgar Evers, all very strong Christians who saw integrally the connection between Jesus and justice. What I have faced in predominantly white settings is a highly individualistic understanding of the world, um, sure. and particularly racism, that doesn't really give uh, due attention, in my view, to the issues of policies and systems and power when it comes to racism. So, because individualization is a key aspect of evangelicalism. You know, it's God, humans, Christ's response. It's a, it's a, it's a personal decision. It's, you know, we deal with our own sin and maybe confront someone else on their sin, but to see the yes, systems and structures and uh, yet it's simultaneously, you know, when Tom Skinner got up at Urbana in 1970, um, he also spoke as a, a follower of Christ who appeal, appealed to the scriptures, who, who ticked off a lot of people at that meeting, uh, and yet simultaneously spoke from that community in some way, even though it wasn't always received in that community. That's right. And I would say 10 years ago, you spoke from that community yeah. And today, I think you you speak sometimes uh, to that community, and and I think mm -hmm. both of those are valuable. So how should how should I, as your friend, as a as a white evangelical, how should I hear Jamar Tisby's critique today? You used the phrase earlier, evangelical adjacent. I, I've recently started using that phrase, but I think it's always been true because there's always been a somewhat separation um, because of race. So even when I was more speaking out of 
the the sort of white evangelical context, there was always a sense of being in, but not not of, Fair. and not in a you know sin and holiness kind of way, more of a cultural racial kind of way. Mm-hmm. So I think there's always been that dynamic of both speaking out of and to white evangelicals. So for folks who are listening, how you should hear me is as one who has been deeply, deeply, deeply in these circles. Um, like I said, I was on, in the ordination process of a very conservative uh, evangelical and reformed denomination. I, we, can, we, can, we can say Presbyterian Church America takes one Google. So you're, you're, going, through the PC, you're going through the PCA ordination process. Yeah, I, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary and they have multiple campuses. I went to the flagship campus in Jackson, Mississippi. In Jackson. Don't, don't miss the <laughs> historical connection there. Jackson, Mississippi. Exactly yeah. right. right. Um, I started the Reformed African-American Network. You know, so I came to faith in a white evangelical youth group and church context. So hear me as one whose church home has really been historically white evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So I, I speak from a place of love and appreciation. Mm-hmm. And I speak because I want it to be better. And I want it to be better precisely because I have had this intimate personal experience within it. So I'm not one who doesn't understand evangelicalism, who looks at all the caricatures and just throws stones. I'm one who's been in it, who's been a leader in it, who's been vocal and public in it, and who's been burned um, by institutions and certain individuals. Uh, and I don't want that to happen yeah. to more people. Yeah. That's where I'm coming from. And I, I read, uh, and I and I, let me let me get you know, let me make sure so someone could put this on some like egg, edited podcast somewhere. I read and encourage you to read Jamar's book books, particularly the color of compromise, the truth about American churches, complicity in racism, and more recently, how to fight racism, courageous Christianity, and the journey toward racial justice. Um, okay, so that's you. But now you're a critical race theorist. I read it on the internet. They can't put it on the internet unless it's true. <laughs> So talk to us. Talk to me about uh, critical race theory, um, because uh, because it has become a major issue. Uh, the, the, using the phrase "Black Lives Matter," Black Lives Matter was a major issue four or five years ago. Now I think critical race theory is it. And are are you a critical race theorist? If so, why or why not? Uh, I am a historian. Yeah. And critical race theory is something that is prevalent most often in legal studies. So no, I'm not a critical race theorist, but I want I'm quick to point out. I don't think that should be a pejorative in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, so even as we deny, or as I say, I'm not a critical race theorist, it's not because I think um, there's something demonic inherently about the, theo- the, the theory or um, the people who uh, study it, right? I say I'm not a critical race theory, a theorist out of respect for actual scholars who do who this are, work. Who are there? But, but the cultural expression, people. So, the, so I, I think for a little people here, say I'm not a critical race theorist, or you know, critical race theory is not taught in in schools, uh, right. which which I would use, I would say that. Uh, but that has become, I think, for good or for ill, and maybe more for ill than for good, that has become a catch-all term for when you express, for example, that the system itself is inherently racist throughout that there are, it pits, people would say, groups against one another without any path to redemption or reconciliation. So let's let's agree that, uh, you and I, not everyone will agree, that critical race theory as an academic discipline, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not an expert in the field, 
Uh, you probably know more about it than I do, but you wouldn't put yourself in that category because you're not a legal theorist. But some of the ideas do point to just how much racism has uh, is a part of our everyday existence right. or not. So when we look at it more broadly, um, where does where does that fit with your thinking? Because I, I want to be among one of those who say, um, I, I believe racism is real. I think there are parts of racism that have projected into the present, and there are parts of our society that still are systemically racist. I'm not one who would say that the total, and we may disagree on this, that the totality of the system is uh, one provost at a conservative seminary said, paraphrasing, if you peel back, you'll see it's just all built on the construct of racism. So where 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 might I fit in there? And what might you say to me if I might say, you know, I believe in systemic racism, but I also think some people take it too far. And that's often under the cultural expression of critical race theory. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so as a historian, I'm interested in origins. Right. So critical race theory arose in uh, the 1970s-ish, and there was a particular sort of founding um, intellectual uh, who, who helped formulate it named Derek Bell. And, and he's asking basic questions like, if after all of this activity in the civil rights movement, after all of this momentum, all of this conversation, all of these supposed changes, why are Black people still uh, marginalized, still not reaping uh, the benefits of being in this nation, still not being able to tap into the American dream. And basically he was saying, well, you can still have uh, very racially unequal laws and policies without expressly using racial terms like black or white. And he started to analyze the way laws and policies, the most famous example, of course, being uh, the difference in sentencing for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, right, right. both cocaine, both drugs, both illegal and illicit, but crack cocaine, which is more prevalent in poorer and black communities had a much, much harsher sentencing than powder cocaine. Uh, that law has since been revised because of the attention drawn to those kinds of disparities. So that's what critical race theory in its origins is trying right. to explain. So what about today in, in the 21st century, you know, 40, 50 years hence? Uh, in 2020, we experienced by the numbers, the largest social movement in US history. Right. Literally millions of people, many of them white, marching in protest against racism, in particular anti-Black police brutality. Yeah, larger and, than the civil rights movement in the 60s, important to note. Yes, exactly. So yeah. I really see this, what I call an anti-CRT crusade, partially as backlash against them. Yes. What started happening in 2020, people read um, books like White Fragility and Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, which, by the way, people still think I work at the Center for Oh, wow, that's on my list of questions. That's on my list of questions. <laughs> we'll get there. We're going to get to that. I don't work there. We're um, going to get that. But, it, but, it, <laughs> but the people do put you in that frame. And by the way, your book, uh, uh, Color of Compromise, actually went to the New York Times bestseller list after it was out. It sold out on all printing locations after uh, the murder of George Floyd and the response to that. And you became New York Times bestseller. So people were having these conversations all over. So I agree that the CRT panic, as I call it, is a response to some of that. And simultaneously, I want to press a little bit on what it actually means, but keep going to what you were saying. So we have to look at it in that context. And I think people got really spooked and up at arms when in Christian circles, they start, started talking about things like um, white privilege and about, uh, you know, institutional or systemic racism. And it seemed like 
uh, for certain people that this was pervasive. This kind of talk about race and racism was pervasive. It was very new to them. And it they felt if they were white, like they were just sinful because of their white, because right. they were right. white. Um, so it was, I think, partly in response to this wave of attention, renewed attention that racism got. And it really put um, people who were comfortable with the status quo on their heels. And they found ways to to push back. Well, you and you said things that were uh, discombobulating to some people. You, for example, pointed out because uh, the story we tell uh, about I, I stand in a corner. I don't think we ever, you've never been to the museum, but I stand in a corner. At least you're not, but I, you were when you spoke in chapel. I was out of town. Um, and there's this picture of Billy Graham next to Martin Luther King Jr. And I explain Billy Graham's um, complex thoughts and his, um, you know, for example, he, we all know he took down the ropes at Chattanooga. We also know he preached to segregated crusades before that. We know that he, and you, and you point all this out in the book, he, he was in, didn't go to Selma. He, he uh, didn't, he actually, you know, the disagreement on the March on Washington. And he would say, Billy Graham would say, this was, I'm not sure if it's the greatest or one of the greatest regrets of his life was not being involved in the civil rights movement. And that was our last, one of our recent conversations you and I had is one of the reasons I want to be concerned about these issues. But when you point that out, it's interesting to me, things that Billy Graham said later were true, you point them out and we don't maybe tell them in the hagiography, the Billy Graham's actually pretty clear that he made, we should have been engaged and involved. So by pointing out those realities, it seems to undermine, I think, some of people's, and it makes people uncomfortable. And you don't seem to be worried about making people uncomfortable because they need to be made uncomfortable. So why is that? I don't ever intend to make people unnecessarily uncomfortable. Oh, that unnecessarily word is is doing a lot of work in this sentence. It's got to because <laughs> uh, the caricature on the internet is that I'm just sort of gleefully typing at my keyboard. Ooh, what's really going to make white evangelicals mad. I should say this. No, it's not that. It grieves me um, that we don't have a better historical record when it comes to uh, the U.S. church and 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 race. I'm talking about predominantly white Christian circles. Um, but there is a kind of conflict that is necessary when truth-telling and peacemaking so when we think about MLK's quote about um, you know the absence of conflict versus the presence of peace, right? That's really what we're getting to, and I think that's what shifted in white evangelicalism in the 2010s. I would trace the modern evangelical racial reconciliation movement back to the late 80s, early 90s. I would say that had momentum and steam up through the early 2010s, and I think in that period we thought an absence of conflict over racial issues, yeah, yeah. particularly in the church, was the presence of peace. But then when certain circumstances like the murder of Trayvon Martin and many, many other incidents um, pressed the issue and we started from Black people speaking the, the, the truth and our realities that are still present today around racism, that caused a conflict which disrupted this superficial kind of peace in quotation marks. Um, and so I think that's really the shift. Mm -hmm. All of that um, is within the context of just as there are people who go overboard on the racial status quo 
exaggerate, say things clumsily, maybe even have really harmful ideas. The same is true for people who want to change the racial status quo. Okay. So what I'm saying is you can absolutely find instances of people overstating things, people really, really being unloving toward okay. white people in their zeal to see um, you know, race, racism uh, reduced. I just, that's, I hope that's, I try to avoid that. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Okay. So, but you did go to work for Ibram Kendi. So let's talk some about that. And, yes. um, and now you're not. And so give a little bit of biography here of what's going on. What's the thinking through this journey? So in March, 2021, I stepped down from my role as founder and CEO, well, as CEO of The Witness and yeah, you took, can't step down your role from founder. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking that as I spoke it. Um, and I did that in order to take a job at the Center for Anti-Research, Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. A couple of things were happening. One, I was rounding out my dissertation. And so I was going to be graduating soon. And the typical thing is if you get your PhD, particularly as a historian, you go to work at a college or university. Yeah. Those jobs are in short supply, as you well know. And so this was an opportunity as a scholar to work. Oh, at I, I, I just want to push back on that in a loving way. <laughs> you and I have talked that there are multiple schools that are literally holding chairs for you that you have declined. Let's just be honest about this. I won't name them, but you and I have talked about them. And uh, they're in the South. I mean, brother. So, but you okay. Know, but you know the, that what I'm talking about and the way I try to talk about it, I would be constantly in battle mode in a lot of. Well, I, I think that's probably fair. You, you, yeah. yeah okay. So keep going back. I, I interrupted your story, but I, <laughs> I didn't want to sound like you're just sitting around. So I don't got anywhere to work. So I think I'm going to go work for Kindy. <laughs> Uh, if, 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 if maybe we had taken some of these lessons to heart earlier, I would, I would have plenty of options. Um, okay. so I, I, it was an academic job. It was an R1 research university. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a great position from, for an yeah. academic. In addition, they had incredible resources and incredible reach. So for me, it was an opportunity to continue the work that I was doing at, on a larger scale. Um, so I worked at that job remotely for five months, I say remote because I still live in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side. And, um, but for several reasons decided it just, just wasn't the right fit. So I stepped down from that August 5th, 2021. I remember the date because the same date I defended my dissertation. Nice. Uh, so I haven't worked there. So this is part of my frustration with right. this Grove City College report and many people who criticize me online. There's a, there's a, there's a laziness there to not even know that I haven't worked at this place for, you know, eight, nine months. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's part of it. And people, the reason why that's important is because people use that association sure. to dismiss me because obviously I'm, I'm in the enemy camp, so I can't be. Oh, no, there's uh, no question. I mean, I will get all kinds of stuff just lit up on the internet because of even this conversation, even when I'm pressing you on stuff, it'll just light up internet. Okay. So, so what do you do now other than make the national news for sermons you did a few years ago? It's been interesting. Um, I'm a historian, author, speaker. Most of my time is spent writing at my newsletter. Um, the invitations to speak at Christian colleges haven't been as voluminous as before. I don't know if that's directly connected to anything or not. Um, and then I, you know, I'm still hoping to write books, trying to work on the next 
book contract now, but that's it. I mean, I'm self-employed at this point. And you mentioned before, I just want to make clear um, when I speak to faculty and particularly staff of color at predominantly white Christian colleges and universities, even nonprofits in general, there is a weariness there. Yeah. There is a stressed outness there because I mean, honestly, for the last 10 years, it's been wave after wave after wave of current events that um, press the issue that we need to change um, the racial status quo. We need to make progress in our institutions. That progress has been very slow, if non-existent in some places. And there Mm -hmm. are people who are working within these institutions that are just tired. Mm -hmm. They They are worn out. They stay because of the students. Yeah. They stay because of faith and hope. But how many times can your efforts be railroaded or disempowered or impeded or spoken against before you're like, I, I, I can't do this right. anymore? Right. So I've been in that position. I haven't taken certain positions because I don't want to be there. And it literally affects your mental and your physical health sure. over time. And I'm just seeing that more and more. And I just want to say that because there might be folks listening who, who don't realize that's a reality for some folks yeah. and maybe within their own organizations. Um, but that's why, you know, we have to be very circumspect as people yeah. who talk about racial justice, about where we go and where we align ourselves. Yeah, one sentence will be taken. Even if you, I mean, let's say it's not taken out of context. It's just it was a sentence uttered at the wrong time in the wrong way. That sentence will be the thing that people seek to paint you and define you with forever. So I get, or in this case, the employment. I think the Christian college thing, the employment at, uh, with the partnership with Kindy, I think is probably part of why that is. And I think it's important to kind of see that as part of your journey. I, I want to understand um, how then we should think about some of these issues of race. So. Um, you, the, the example you gave was super helpful. The example of crack cocaine versus uh, powder cocaine. Uh, I planted a church in the inner city of Buffalo, New York, um, uh, during the crap, crack epidemic of the late 80s and 90s. And I wrote about this later in the Washington Post. We'll put it in the show notes. And because my example was the way I perceived the crack epidemic in the 80s versus the, uh, the meth addiction in rural communities today. And I, I wrote, I think they put the headline in my double standard on these issues. And that's an example where uh, critical race theory, the understanding of how we deal with law impacts those things. And I think most people when look at this would say, you know, that was, that's an example of the system itself impacting through law disproportionately uh, African-American communities. So, um, so, so, so again, if we, if we say that to be the case, so, so here's, here's where Ed Stetzer is. Might be the wrong place. I want you to help me. So I learned about systemic racism probably in my early 20s pastoring in a predominantly African. That neighborhood we saw with that Topps Market, uh, that was a mile from my home. And so predominantly African-American community. I think the neighborhood I lived in was 40% African-American, 30% Anglo, and then everybody else. Um, so I believe in systemic racism that there are things in the past that project into the present, including we give the example of how uh, legal and sentencing systems work. So I believed in systemic racism, believe in systemic racism. After the murder of George Floyd, these conversations subtly accelerated. We'll put an article in the show notes from Ross Douthat at the New York Times called Waking Up in 2030. And he uses the example of how people see race 
where things, some people said, you know, the whole system's just inherently racist. And again, we talk about several, you peel it back and everything is built on systemic racism. Um, and, you know, things where the 1619 Project come out and really point to the prevalence. Your book talks about the evangelical complicity. Again, I want to encourage people to pick it up. The evangelical complicity. And these are just, these are not like, when you talk about your book, these are like quotes. These are not like things that, they're opinions. These are, you're an historian. So my question is for me as a Christian who happens to be white, who's an evangelical, who believes systemic racism is real, but I don't see everything as being built on, the entire system, the substructure being built on a rotting corpse of racism. Again, I'm quoting a conservative provost at, or paraphrasing a conservative provost at a seminary. Where do, where do I fit and am I wrong? Should I think differently? Because I think a lot of our listeners would say, yeah, you know, I think system, I, after George Floyd's murder, people said, I think police maybe treated him differently because he was, he was African-American. So I can say that to be real and true, but I'm concerned about everything being labeled that way. Are we wrong? Help me. And you can say, I'm going to hurt my feelings. I appreciate that. Um, I'll say this. As a historian, um, the more you study the past, the more racism you find, not less. Okay. So for instance, uh, we were talking earlier about Billy Graham pulling down the ropes. And this is a year before Brown v. Board, right? So he's, he's ahead of the curve on the Supreme Court decision on desegregation. But you also find a very strong anti-communism theme in Graham's teachings, a teaching that was weaponized and often code against civil rights activists. Uh, and there's a, a lot of theory and concept that goes into you know, collectivism and Marxism and things like that. But understand that a lot of evangelical opposition to communism also had the impact of um, opposing civil rights activists in, in the movement in general. So that's another layer that as you study history, oh, you're like, oh, there's racial implications there that I never thought about. Um, there are so many instances, for instance, as we talk about George Floyd and anti-Black, why, why are Black people so activated when we see another video of these instances? It's not just that one incident, it's because we're aware of the historical pattern such that even the Black Panthers, which were much reviled in their day, were originally called the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Self-defense against whom or what? Against police brutality, police coming in their communities and brutalizing local Black people. So all I'm saying is, as you study the pattern of human behavior in this nation, you find more instances of racial prejudice and inequality and not less. And I just think that white evangelicals who already um, by the statistics and the polling uh, see racism as less of an issue than other people. Than any other group, any other group in polling. any other group yeah, of people, yeah, which yeah. is telling. I think that the um, burden and the um, somewhat of a mission needs to be to highlight how racism is in fact still a problem and has been for a long time. Okay, I agree that racism still is a problem. I believe that has been for a long time. I agree that we can read history and more, the more we read history, the more we see that reality. 
I'm also so so so. Let's say I want to be aware of those things, which I, I think you and I know each other long enough to know that I would say I'm one who sought to be more aware. I've learned more. I've learned from you. I've learned from others. Um, I've also learned that there are things that a whole lot of people are saying that I don't see as true. I I, I for example, I do believe that that as a as a white person that I I am treated and received differently. Uh, my friend Charlie Dates and I went around and just, uh, we, he wanted to meet for dinner before I knew him well. And we went out and just engaged people in the community differently. I mean, he just treated very differently. We're walking around together. I mean, you know that downtown Chicago, very differently. Charlie, for those of you who don't know, is African-American. Um, so, so all of those things that you've said are true. Yet I also read some authors, because I, I read widely in and around this space, who I'm saying, you know what? I don't, I think they're just taking it too far. And am I... It, there, there seems to be like a sense that if if I don't agree with those distances that they're going, that I'm not going, am I missing it? Am I a white moderate in this case? Um, so, because because again, I, I let me be clear, I do have concerns about the cultural expression of what some might call critical race theory, though I I see most of it as CRT panic, where it's just like mm -hmm. if your pastor mentions systemic racism, which I think is real and and identifiable in our culture today. That pastor gets letters saying CRT has taken over the church. So, but it, for some of us, we kind of feel in this space, like I'm not going as far as they're going and I want to be aware. So help me to understand how should I respond when, when I'm, am I a white moderate for not believing everything is undergirded by a rotting corpse of racism? I'll just speak for myself. Yeah. I want people to see that oftentimes the most problematic and clear issues of racism are differences in degree, not in kind. Okay. So I want people to understand that compromise in one area or instance is actually um, a turn down volume of something more overt. So, um, when I was in seminary, uh, the, it was in this part of Jackson that was considered, quote unquote, the bad part of town. And I would hear other seminarians, other Christians saying, you know, don't go to that neighborhood or in don't go to, um, you know, that part of town. Of course, these are majority black parts of the city. I mean, Jackson is majority black overall, but uh, that sort of assumption and you ministered in in this you lived in a, a, sure. a community that maybe people would say don't go to that part of town oh for sure right the, the mayor <laughs> so, said the mayor said that to me the mayor of buffalo said that to me but yeah so peel back the layer what what does that statement indicate about that per, what that person believes mm -hmm. about black people about other people of color right so even in the color of compromise what i was trying to say is the most egregious acts of racism occur within a context of complicity and a white lawyer charles morgan jr stood up and told other white people after the birmingham church bombing at the 16th street baptist church who threw that bomb he said we all did it why because bombings like that had happened before and there wasn't enough community outrage particularly among white Christians to say no more and never again. And so now, even in our political environment, we have people, elected politicians, literally touting the great replacement theory, right? This is connected to the Buffalo massacre, that, that there's some insidious plot by Jewish people and Democrats to replace uh, 
good old fashioned white folks and um, populate the nation with people of color so that the politics will be different. That notion, which is racist to its core, is being touted at the highest levels. And so the point I want people to get is, if you are silent when politicians or pundits are touting that, and then a literal violent deadly massacre occurs, we can't just wipe our hands of that. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. And so, okay, I don't want to wipe my hands of it. Um, I want to, you know, pastors and church leaders listen to this podcast. I want them to listen and learn as I as I have learned from you and and from others. Um, not means we have to. We don't have to agree on every single thing, but we need to know. And history is certainly. I mean, you're an historian. It's worth noting that Jamar is an historian. Um, and but also an advocate. Matter of fact, you're, you're, let me mention your your books again, so people can pick them up as well. One is, of course, the Color of Compromise, but how to fight racism, courageous Christianity in the journey towards racial justice. What was the award it just won? I should have had that in my notes. What was the award it just won? Uh, it won in the Faith and Culture category for the Christian Book Awards. Love that, love that. Um, and want to encourage people to to read it, find it helpful. Um, you'll be challenged by it for sure. Okay, so I guess here I am agreeing with you about systemic racism. Um, agreeing, uh, agreeing about history that's here, working towards that. I think you, I think you would say that I've been an advocate and an ally. Um, but I guess the question is, is what do you want from me, like someone like me, that is not now where I think a whole lot of pastors would be in that space. I want to talk about those who are afraid to speak up on it in just a minute. But maybe they internally feel that way. What am I missing from your view, because I can tell you, Kindy thinks I'm missing a whole lot, and and Right Fragility thinks I'm missing a whole lot, and I could give a whole lot of things that thinks I'm missing a whole lot. Do you think I, what 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 do you say, Ed, you should also think, know, engage this? I love this conversation. No, I know, listen, we don't play around. We don't play around. <laughs> well, you're one of the few who really asks me um, what, what I think and what I hope. Um, what I hope is that white evangelicals will see more of the um, institutional and systemic manifestations of racism and not just the individual and the interpersonal manifestations of racism. That is to say that racism has a personal dimension, does talk about how an individual expresses racial bias toward another individual, Uh, but that's not all. That racism expresses itself in the way we do life in this country. And so what I'm hoping is that if we acknowledge the history, so what's interesting about the color of compromise, people of all ideological persuasions um, are in agreement with the history. Because like you said, I use primary sources. I'm talking about quotes. I'm not just giving my opinion, right? But then the resistance comes in two places. The resistance comes um, when I start talking about the rise of the religious right, <laughs> yeah, sure. In this sure. Uh, political marriage between uh, some parts of white evangelicalism and the Republican Party, and the other part of resistance comes in: what do we do about this historic racism that continues mm-hmm. to exert momentum in the present? Those are the areas where there's disagreement. What I want folks to understand is um, we do have to change policies. And I'm not even just talking on a federal level. I'm talking about our Christian schools mm-hmm. and universities and nonprofits, right? I'm talking about um, let's make sure 
that if we are appropriately outraged about racism in the past, that we don't repeat the um, the gradualism, the complacency of the past, and that we take decisive action in the present. Last question, I think, I think. <laughs> um, pastors and church leaders have seen, I, I actually do a, uh, I do a, um, a seminar uh, on the a post-COVID world, and part of it, I talk about you in that, I talk about the color of compromise, and, and I talk about in summer 2020, I mean, everyone was having a conversation, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but I mean, I, I, usually when I'm at a meeting, where was I? I was with Vineyard Leaders uh, last week and uh, time of this recording. And I, if I asked how many of you had a conversation during the summer of 2020 about race or racial injustice or systemic racism, almost everyone says yes. And I said, how many of you heard about that critically from people who were upset with you within just a few, if not immediately within a few months? And almost everyone says yes. So there was a time, again, all the books sold off the shelves, yours, uh, I mean, I, I, John Perkins, all John Perkins books sold out. I think, I'm trying to remember who else told me, several other people who, Christians who wrote in that space, all their books sold out. And it seems that we're in a very different place than where we were in summer 2020. And right now, a lot of our listeners, pastors and church leaders are saying, if I say, if I mention Jamar Tisby, I mean, and again, if I mention Jamar Tisby, so here I am mentioning Jamar Tisby. So. I'm with you. I'm walking this journey with you. Uh, that I will get, I'll lose people in my church. Uh, there'll be a cost to this. Now, um, there's a letter that circulated around the internet, a very famous pastor that almost everyone on this call would know, um, who uh, since with the Lord and has a different view, but when he was a pastor of a church in California, wrote Wheaton College uh, after uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and our students here held a vigil. And in that letter, he was pretty strong. He said, uh, he said, it seems incredible that a Christian college could participate in honoring an outright theological liberal heretic whose nonviolent demonstrations have resulted in the deaths of 17 people. He's talking about, of course, Martin Luther King. As a pastor, I'm asked every year by parents and prospective students to express my sentiments of Wheaton College. In all fairness, I'd like to know if this article, article adequately describes the fact. I honestly would be quite delighted if you can say no. Um, you know, so, so Wheaton College, 1968, this is a letter that sent uh, May 23rd, 1968. And we can just go back and see April 4, 1968, when King was assassinated. Um, there's a cost. I also want to pastor my congregation and walk through that. So I want you, in our closing answer, to speak to, not all of our listeners aren't white, but to speak to white evangelical pastors who are unsure how to lead through this, to to be faithful to scriptures, to, to love their congregations as they are? And what would you exhort them to do, say, and lead? Tell the truth. Speak the truth in love. The Bible said that the, the, that the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It says that the truth will divide. And I think that's what's happening right now, such that when you mention either certain individuals or certain ideas around race, racism, racial justice, there's a division. Mm -hmm. But perhaps there's a necessary division. Perhaps there's a pruning. Perhaps there is a sifting that needs to happen in church environments, denominational environments that have for so long um, taken the absence of conflict on racism as the presence of peace. And now what I would encourage pastors to do is walk in a manner worthy of your calling, the least, the, the foundation of which is to speak the truth in love. Why? 
in that passage, so that the body may grow. And what I need folks to understand is to go back and meditate on Matthew chapter five, where Jesus said, blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness sake. So if speaking the truth about racism is indeed righteous, which I believe it is, then blessed are you when you are persecuted for speaking that truth. And in the very next verse, it, it identifies a certain kind of persecution as people saying all kinds of lies about you. So understand that email, that label, that, you know, when they call you a critical race theorist, when they call you a liberal or a heretic or whatever, that's some of what Jesus was talking about. And it tells us that in the very next verse. So all I can say is the way is narrow, which for pastors will mean oftentimes you will lose money and you will lose people. And we haven't talked about my local church situation, but that's a saga in and of itself because mm -hmm. we went under a we un endured a church split because of what I think was white Christian nationalism. And all I'm saying is many pastors um, either completely avoid or take a very, very moderate approach to these issues because fundamentally they don't want to lose money or people. Now, I don't think it's this sort of draconian calculation like that, Sure, but that's the fear. And all I can say is there's no amount of adverbs you can use. There's no way of couching this message that is going to completely avoid um, opposition and confrontation. Mm. And we got to really decide. We've got to really count the cost. Whether you look at U.S. history or the Bible, people who stood up for truth had a, had a tough road in this life. Mm. Are you willing to walk that road? if it means following Jesus. And that's all I can say. I love when you start working in Bible texts. That's, <laughs> uh, that's I've heard you preach too. And, and uh, I also don't love it when you just throw in casually white Christian nationalism. I'm out of time to follow up on some of those <laughs> questions, but, but that's okay. That's okay. Because we've gone, this is probably the longest podcast we've done, but I think it was important to kind of walk through some of these conversations. I really do want to encourage those of you listening to engage Jamar's work. Um, I don't know that you're going to agree with, I think of the history stuff. I mean, he's right. It's some of you immediately think, well, the 1619 project was, yeah, that's been, there've been challenges to some of that, though. I want to encourage you to look at that. That's how we learn is by looking at things. I'm a professor. Let's read original sources. Yeah. So, so read, um, the color of compromise. Um, and also to his, his book on, uh, rate, rate, just where people have been engaging the book on racism as well. And that's often been used in churches, things of that sort. It's called how to fight racism, courageous Christianity and the journey toward racial justice. I will say, I don't usually close with my own thought, but I will in this context, that I do stand in that corner where Billy Graham is pictured right next to Martin Luther King Jr. and had a complex relationship. And um, and and the letters are, are very, and Jamar cites some of them uh, in the book. Uh, I would also say that one of the reasons that I care about, I'm engaged in these issues, is because of the words of Billy Graham later in his life, who said he should have been more involved and shouldn't be engaged, and he regretted it. And the reality is, it's not always easy. Uh, doesn't mean you you know you're going to get painted with people. You're going to be well. He says this, or he read this, and and that's okay. At the end of the day, um, through the lens of Scripture, we tell the good news of the gospel and the implications of the gospel include dealing with these realities. 
You've been listening to Dr. Jamar Tisby. You can learn more about him at jamartisby.com. And don't forget to check out his books, The Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism. You can find more interviews with the Sets of Church Leaders podcast, as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com. And don't forget that you can check out our extended portions of some of our interviews at churchleaders.com slash plus. And again, if you found our conversation helpful today, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.